We'd like to welcome a supporter, sponsor, and friend of both Dr. Nelson and myself, and that's Nationwide. And Nationwide has decided to support the Courageous Conversation podcast. So on behalf of Dr. Nelson, I would like to express our sincerest appreciation to the people at Nationwide for their support of the Courageous Conversation podcast. Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. So a lot of your perspective, Julie, developed in that first experience in college and grew with your experiences at USC. Did you have your own courageous conversations with your roommates and teammates at either university? We did at times, um, just in terms of background. So um, my dad was a huge track fan. My dad loved everyone on the team. My dad was an architect and kind of a hippie in a way and just such an amazing person. And he lived up in Silverado. He actually hosted our full track team. Um, we stayed a week at my dad's and had camp there with our coach. We ran up in the mountains. And, and I think at that time, there was a lot of conversations of just, I think some of our team members, you know, saying, gosh, I can't believe this house. And it wasn't a mansion by any means, but, and just about like the differences you know, and maybe what our homes look like. The, here's a story. One of my track teammates is brilliant. Even in college, I was like, oh my gosh, she is so smart and kind of quiet, shy. She was a sprinter. She's an attorney. She was actually overseeing 3,000 staff people at the DOJ in Washington, D.C. And so I work with her in our expansion in um, Arlington, Virginia. So we went to lunch and we were talking about our sons, right? She has one son. I have three. And it's that conversation, you know, that, that people talk about, about the conversation um, Black parents have to have with their kids. And it was probably four or five years ago. It was when I hadn't really thought of that much, but we went to lunch and um, I was just in tears. I was like, you know what, if anybody says, you know, that racism isn't real, like, what, what do you talk about to your kids? What do you, t I told my three boys, you don't get in trouble and you be respectful. And Hearing Jalan, here she is, an attorney, she's overseeing the staff at the biggest Department of Justice in the United States, talking about how afraid she is for her 12-year-old son. And I was just crying. And I said, I've never even, I've never thought of those things. That to me as a mother, because first more than anything, I'm a mother and hopefully a mother to our 400,000 kids as we go, is like the most screaming slap in the face, like no one can argue with what the trauma that that is and, and why, why is it? If, if racism doesn't exist, then why, why do we have to have different conversations for our kids? You know, and I think it's one of the things that, um, that makes me interested in working with law enforcement, you know, which I think is something that, that we can talk about. I, like I said, I'm not blindly pro-police and we're not a police program, but we got a lot of work to do, you know, and I don't think we're ever going to get to something that is creates safer communities for everybody where everybody has the state's constitutional rights and, and we all feel equally safe until we start building something different. So we've had a lot of success in that area. And it goes back to getting to know humans, getting to know kids, learning about your community. And so, but that conversation with Jalan just, just pushed me over what I already did believe, but just in such a powerful way. 
And you know what, Julie, when Phil and I had that podcast where he brought that to my attention, the talk, I was in shock. I was speechless for a change because I wasn't aware of it. The talk that we had with kids, well, I have two girls, so the only thing I talked about is how nasty boys were. The thing we talk about is got more to do with just being careful and respectful of other people, but not the same talk that Phil had to have with his sons and, and that in speaking to, and daughter, it's a conversation that really is part of a courageous conversation that we as a, as a community, as a world need to understand. We shouldn't be having to have different conversations. So I'm just curious, you know, you are a half miler. So you, you weren't running a sprint, you were running a marathon. As far as I'm concerned, anything over 50 meters is a marathon. But your, your program is 20 years old now. So it's becoming a marathon. Yeah. And part of this marathon is understanding the impact that it's had long-term on communities, on families, and on kids. So looking through the retrospectoscope, do you have some outcomes that you can share about how the, the programs have impacted communities and kids and families? Yeah, that's what I'm most proud of. About four years ago, our board, you know, we really had so many opportunities to scale and to really create a movement of growing kind of far and wide rather than deep and knew that, you know, to really have get federal funding to really become a national model, we needed the research to back us up. We really needed to be an empirically validated model. And I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Adam Fine, and he is a young but lead uh, criminology professor at Arizona State, but developmental psychologist by trade, which I love. He got his PhD at UCI in developmental psychology. He did Teach for America, so he understands kids. But his focus is on youth in the law. His focus is on how to make sure kids don't get in the system, if they do have it, it, get in the system or through probation, how to lower recidivism rate. So he's in this little niche that I'm really fascinated with because, again, we also work with law enforcement. And I first talked with him and he, he couldn't really believe we did what we did. We have every student that goes through the program fill out a handwritten evaluation in their own words about what they learned and what they'll do different. And we've done some surveys of police officers. So he came to my office and, and I just like handed over and we got like 10,000 surveys and he just was blown away and he said, I would love to do your research, but um, if we do it, I want it to be an ironclad contract that I'm, a, uh, what's the word? Independent. Independent researcher. And I signed over not only that, but I said that he could publish any outcomes that he gets without permission. Because I was so confident the impact of this program was having on 20 years. You don't have to have the research to see it. If you can see it, you go, this is the most amazing thing. Look at these kids. Look how powerful they are and how proud they are of what they're accomplishing through empathy and self-efficacy. Um, so I said, you can have at it. So we signed this ironclad agreement um, with Arizona State University. Um, our first opportunity, which is, you're both doctors, so you'll appreciate this, but we had an opportunity to partner with Compton Unified to do a randomized control trial study, right? So we're talking wow. the biggest most reputable way you can do research. Hard to do in a school district because we have schools now that randomly got chosen to not get the program but have to do all the research. Now we told them we'd give the program to them after, um, but as far as, and then we had schools match demographically programs going at the exact same time in case something happened in the media that could skew in 
and just so proud of this research. I'll tell you more about it, but I will tell you, Dr. Fine's research has been published in the American Psychological Association Journal for Psychology, Public Policy, and Law. It's been published in the, um, the Journal for Experimental Criminology and was just published in an international journal on development. It's more of a developmental paper. So we pre and post test the kids um, without my staff involved. The teachers read the directions. It's all in their classroom without any outside influence. So we pre and post test and the pre-test, um, the majority of the questions, uh, about 70% of them are all on um, youth perception of themselves, how they feel connected to their school, to their community. Um, they're questions that evoke empathy and self-efficacy that kids actually believe they can affect change. Um, how adults perceive them. Um, so they're more, they're more built on protective factors to lower high-risk behavior. They're really built on um, thriving indicators for kids based on research. And then the last few questions, because of all that's going on with law enforcement, we asked pre and post-test kids on police. So police are an important part of the community. Police officers believe in me. Police officers want me to be successful. And um, the Delta on both across all of our schools in Compton, and we did this with New York City, um, positive in every area tested and every school tested, which Dr. Fine said never happens. There's always one school that doesn't really work and you have to explain. Um, but huge change in the way um, kids view themselves, um, uh, self-efficacy, um, empathy. And uh, so I'm so proud that resulted, we got our first Department of Justice grant in partnership with Phoenix and Phoenix PD. So that was our first federal grant, which I'm really excited about. Um, but again, we, we need to be empirically validated to be invited at that table, right? So um, now we're working hopefully with Compton on this SR3 funding, which is funding um, as part of the American Recovery Act um, based on social emotional learning. So our kids just need so much support. So I wasn't the funnest part of what I do because I just want to go create change. Right. I knew it was what we needed in our toolbox. We needed to say we're empirically validated when we write our grants. And so I think that is probably something I'm most proud of in the sense that it will open the floodgates for us to reach more kids. So that at the end of the day, that's not the part of this, my job that I love the most, but I just want to know, you know, when I'm hopefully 90 or 95 and I take my last breath or whatever that scenario is, hey, I did everything I could for kids. And I think we all just have to pick that. So I think with all that's going on in the world, all the social injustice and all the causes, I try my best because I have so many opinions. <laughs> I don't think we're one loud screaming voice away from solving these problems. Um, so I kind of try to keep myself in this lane on the freeway, you know, towards creating a more better, more just, more equitable world for everybody. You know, I just, I, my lane, how I can do that in the world is like empowering and, and advocating for kids. So like, I try my best to, to try and stay in that lane because I feel like I can't, nobody can be in all of them. I don't know about adults today, but I know we can affect change by impacting kids. So focusing on equitable education and equitable opportunities for leadership. And so why I often get want to get pulled into other things, I just think like, just stay focused on, on this area. Well, we have to pay the bills, right? And so I understand that's not the most fun part of your job, but you at least you recognize that this is necessary to prolong your impact. You also recognize that hopefully you will spark other 
teams like yours. You seem to be a collaborator. Love it. You know, if you're breathing, you're on the team. And understanding if you want this nationwide and not just a nationwide, your organization being nationwide, but other organizations to adopt right. what you have proven works. And so in order to do that, you have to show that it works, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I applaud you for the investment of time and the sacrifice of fun to get that done. It's necessary. It's just been, it's just been amazing. I'll tell you, I got one of the best compliments, you know, when George Floyd was murdered and it was, everybody was racing to make statements and like, and I just, it felt so weird. I just was like, I don't need a statement. Like this is, look at what we do. Like I was so disturbed by the whole thing and sickened. And I just was like, what? Like we're already doing what we can, but I did get some pressure to put out a statement, which felt so weird. And I called my good friend, Jeff Harris, who I mentioned before. He's the director, was the director of partnerships and programs at Compton uh, Unified. And he's just an amazing man. Why do I have to put out a statement? And he, my favorite compliment, honestly, probably in 20 years, he goes, Julie, you don't need a statement. He's like, you make Black Lives Matter every day. If someone doesn't believe it, they can look at your website. And I was like, thank you. You know, I'm grateful because it made me more aware of the inequities. It made me more committed and shifted in capacity. But you feel good coming from Jeff Harris, you know? I saw it the same way you did, but my response was a little differently. What does a statement do? I kept thinking, oh, so what? You made a statement. If your behavior isn't consistent with that statement, then are you telling me what you're going to do? I, I'm interested in action. I'm interested in, in behavior. And I have no problems with statement of sympathy. But as you said, at that time, there's we were tripping over each other, trying to get our statement out. And there were people who actually were criticizing institutions for not having their statement out soon enough. Yeah, that's kind of what I was feeling. Like, look what we, I don't, I don't know, but I also am very proud to share. We have a divorce board. My board president is incredible. Peter, you know Nestor, incredible. He's my board president because he's been on my board for 10 years. He writes checks. He chairs my Team Kids Youth Council with me. He commits everything he can do to this mission. He happens to be black, right? So when people were like, well, what is your diversity on your board? Like he's not my board president because he's black. He just happens to be black. But my staff right now, I have 12 people on my staff and I hired the best people. I did not intend to have a diverse staff. Do I like it? I think it's great. It reflects our community. But on my board, I have three are Latinx, three are Black, three are white, one is Asian, one is Middle Eastern, two are LGBTQ. And I hired the best people. We're so much better. 20 years, this is our 20th anniversary. I finally feel like I took 19 years to finally feel confident that this mission won't go away. It's a I marathon, not a, not a sprint. It is, but it's been a lot. It has been a lot. And I think, you know, we're finally coming from a platform of confidence rather than fear. Peter's Family Foundation has, has supported Team Kids in our expansion to New York. And, and I've called crying. I've called like, we're going to close our doors or I'm not paying me so I can pay my staff. Like this mission to me, which is all about knowing that kids matter. There's no exit strategy for me, right? We've had 400,000 kids go through this program. If Team Kids fails, that means kids don't actually matter. We couldn't fund it. Nobody actually really cares. You know, so that's been my kind of long, like holding on to is like this can't, investing and mentoring kids to be 
capable humans that can't fail. We have a partnership with UCI, and I would love to have you guys both part of this 20-year partnership with UCI that's core to Teen Kids Expansions. I have interns anywhere from 5 to 12 every quarter. 90% of my staff are the people I hire as interns from UCI. And so my staff is made up of my previous interns. So really, my expansion model nationwide is through university-based partnership first. So we have field study interns who then become our coaches, and they get jobs, and we have more field study interns just hired our first USC students to teach in Compton and Palos Verdes and Torrance. And then we've replicated at Arizona State University for our Phoenix and Tempe program. So now we're putting the university, those young undergraduates who at USC, UCI specifically work with the SAGE scholars, which are first gen students. So I love that. It's like a whole nother tier of teen kids where students, first generation students, many of them are students of color getting to go to college for the first time, why not create this incredible internship program to help build more opportunities for those students? But UCI hosting our first national conference this April. So we're bringing together three sectors of society and community. So we're bringing together universities and school districts. We're bringing together government and public safety, and then our business and corporate partners all to talk about how to truly collaborate for, um, exponential impact in kids' lives. And what are the dates of, of this conference? April 11th and 12th. We'll be focusing on Irvine and Compton primarily. Irvine as our founding partner. And what's in it to police? What's in it for fire? What's in it for school districts? What's in it for businesses and corporate social responsibility? And then we'll be doing a deep dive in Compton. So in person, we'll be Compton and Irvine, really talking about all needs of all kids. And then we'll be doing, it's also virtual, we'll be doing a virtual sort of field trip, if you will, to our Phoenix area and to, uh, to New York, to, to Brooklyn with NYPD and FDNY. So I'm really excited. I'm kind of nervous. It's the biggest thing we've done. But UCI is our host, and they really want to be the university to invite other universities to learn how to replicate this Team Kids partnership for their undergrads to be leading and mentoring change for kids in their community. So I'm just really excited about, about that with our research. We have a couple of our speakers confirmed, which just make me so humbled and so excited. Um, John McLaughlin is coming. He's at the U.S. Department of Ed in Washington, D.C. He is the director of education for every single Title I McKinney-Vento uh, homeless or delinquent youth in the United States. And he's U.S. Department of Ed is actually flying, is covering his expenses to come be a keynote speaker. We also have Mo Kennedy, who's the CEO of NASRO, which is the National Association of School Resource Officers. He's flying in. They're based back east. We just presented at a national policing conference in Florida last July, and he's coming in to talk about youth and policing. And we're going to have some serious conversations because it's an area that I'm proud that I work in. I'm proud that we're trying to build something better. And there are changes that need to happen in the policing world, and it's time to, to make those happen. You know, Julie, you, I, I sincerely feel your angst when you discuss the dichotomous relationship you have with police and the opinions you have of some of the tactics that they use sometimes. And I understand it, it resonates with me. I give a presentation on perspective using three key experiences I've had with police as a black man throughout my life over the 60 odd years of my life uh, to illustrate the difference of the interactions that can occur between BIPOC individuals 
as, as opposed to majority individuals. The first experience was developmental for me. The second was harrowing, and I barely got out with my life. Uh, and the third was a threat to my son. And we talk about it in our podcast, but as individual instances, I just link them all together to show the experience in one man's life and the differences that, that it can cause. And yet, like you, nobody wants to get rid of the police, right? Okay. Defund, defunding the police may be the worst phrase one can think of, but it's probably the phrase that makes everybody stand up and think, at least, that something needs to change. Uh, I am definitely, I definitely recognize the need for police. As a matter of fact, in our communities, if there were no police, that you know we might not be able to survive however however also in our communities we are as likely to be the victim of police work as much as being protected and i've said before in several podcasts that in some cities the strategy of the police was to keep crime in our areas and to keep us out of the rest of the city. And so when you have a, a frame of reference that you're the prisoner and the, they're the prison guards, even if you're not in a cell, it's difficult to have the kind of relationship you're trying to build with kids for them to think of police as public servants who are there to protect them. It's hard. I feel like this is one of those areas that these courageous conversations are, um, because I see the best of policing. I wrote an article that was published when uh, President Obama called for recommendations for 21st century policing. And I was on some amazing calls um, and, and felt unprepared, not unprepared, but maybe over in awe of everyone else on the calls. And I was talking about community-based policing constitutionally based policing when are we building these relationships and it was interesting because there were people in far more powerful positions than I and people were like who who was that talking like no one else was talking about how to do something different for the future how to build relationships to build better cops to to build trust to understand human relationships to build so it was included in in Obama's call and so I've been trying to move the needle on constitutionally based and uh you know, community-based policing for 20 years. So for me, I feel like these conversations are very important in the sense that, that this is kind of the formative change that we really need to be building early on, developmental early on relationships. And so I see the best of the best and I see the best it can be. And I think that we have an army of police and firefighters in every community across the nation. And why are they saying don't play with matches, don't join gangs? And why are they not all mentors? Why are we not all building optimism and protective factors so you don't show up at that DUI, you know, and that shift? It's just a hard conversation to have. I, I gave a presentation to city council the other couple months ago. It's the first time I've ever been completely thrown under the bus in a public meeting because what we do is all good. It's like win, win, win all the way around. So I'm used to people being excited about what we do. But I presented and I also shared about our police chief at the time, who's retired, Chief Hamill, who was there at the beginning of Team Kids and said it's the most important work we should be doing is mentoring kids and being there to support them. And one little part of what I said was about police mentoring kids. 
And I had like 12 people just all over me. Who, who is that woman? And, you know, why would I want police mentoring kids when they want to kill kids? And so everything's so divisive right now that it's hard for me because I know the best it could be. And I'm, again, we teach in East New York, Brooklyn. Like, I'm not just talking about, you know, these like Irvine or whatever. And it's really hard to even enter conversations because people want to dislike everything that you say from the beginning, even though I actually know a little bit more. I'm in schools, in the trenches, I'm building, I'm training police officers. I'm, you know, our staff is doing that work. And I see the change that happens when people get to know each other. One quick story, when I was at PS 149, Daniel K Elementary, which is in East New York, Brooklyn, I was so proud to be there. I just have to say for a minute, because ever since 9-11, I wanted teen kids in New York. Like I was just so proud. We did all this training. We had to get approval from the deputy chiefs at NYPD and FDNY. And I just felt like we made it, you know, we're in New York. You know, if you can make it there, right? You can make it anywhere. I was really excited. And we were at our first leadership team. Again, that school is 100% African-American. And we have a detective there, Marin, Detective Marin. She's Italian. She is New York tough. I'm telling you through and through, but a heart of gold. And we had all our kids in the library. We had about a hundred kids and they were going to do their, start their leadership team process. And Detective Marin walked by this table and this young man, he's 10 years old. He looked right at her and he was like, I hate the cops. And she, and, and she goes, what'd you say? And he said, I said, I hate the cops. And I'm standing in the corner going, oh my God, I'm going to pack up. It's time to go back to California. I'm not ready for this. She kind of got in his face and she said, have you ever met Detective Marin? have you ever met Lorraine Marin? And the kid was like, no. And I mean, they want, he wanted to fight. It was like intense. I can't, I can't capture the anger in his voice. Well, then she says, she's a youth. She runs youth services. She said, every day I look in the mirror and she goes, every day I say, I'm going to make a difference in the life of a kid. And she's like, I love you. I love your friends. I care about you. And every day, this is why I go to work every day to make a difference. And he was trying not to smile because he wanted to fight, right? He didn't want that. And she's like, and I'm going to show up every day because I care about you. And so if you ain't never met Detective Marin, then don't you say you hate the cops. And she stomps off. And I was just like, what just happened? So the kids were writing these posters for the senior center. And he, you could tell he kind of stopped for a minute, like what? And he reached out, he yelled back. He goes, what's your name again? And she goes, Detective Marin. And he goes, I'm drawing you on my paper. So he drew her on his poster. So we're there for six, actually. That's school, we were there about seven weeks. Every week, these two are like, get to be better and better friends, right? And joking with each other. And at the end, and I'm not saying this, that this is the way it should be. And someone could say, well, that's probably whether it's a good idea. But he said he wanted to be a detective. Tough female Italian cop black kid from, you know, PS 149. And just, they both were like, oh my God, like we're people, you know, we're people, we're humans. And again, is that going to change the rest of his life with police? Is that going to change everything? No, but you know what? It's a, I believe if we don't start doing that, if we don't start peeling the layers back of who's behind a badge, what's in the heart of a kid, what the struggle is for that person who's homeless. And like, I don't see how we're ever going to solve any of these problems. With that, Peter, I think we're running out of time, but I can't think of a better way to end this discussion for today. You know, Julie, I wrote down earlier in the day, PS 149, the story of the kids in Brooklyn, a detective cop. I wanted you to tell that story and I was trying to find a way to integrate it. And, and I think you did a good capper 
to our conversation. I, I thank you so much for sharing your passion. And I don't think there's any other way to put it. I mean, I've known you for almost 20 years. And the stories that you've shared with me, that one story from PS149 or whichever school it was, uh, Danny Kay, resonated. And I think it brings together this whole discussion uh, and the need for discussion and the need for conversation and the need to break down barriers and, and to build trust, which was one of the first things you talked about earlier. So on behalf of, of Dr. Nelson and myself and the uh, Courageous Conversations fan club, the two of us. Uh, <laughs> There's three, three, three of us. Okay, three of us, great. <laughs> Julie, uh, thank you. Thank you for your insights, but more importantly, thank you for everything that you were doing. And, and I continue to look forward to being part of the Team Kids fan club. And I should have worn my Team Kids shirt today. It was just a little too cold around the house. So thank you, Julie. It is such a pleasure. Thank you both for what you do. What an amazing friendship you both have. And just the vulnerability to tackle some really difficult conversations is so critical. I wish everybody was listening to your podcast every, every time. I think uh, it would help build a lot of compassion and understanding. And I just, I'm, I'm thrilled to be in your company and hope to work with you both on uh, moving the needle in our communities. Thank you well, so Julie, much. Well, Julie, you can count on me. I think I just joined Team, team Kids. Very impressed with what you're doing. And the values that you shared in your stories are consistent with the ones that you've heard on our on our podcast totally that's why i was excited to be on and we're we got a lot of work to do but i think you know it's less talking more work thank you so much for accepting our invitation we hope we can have you back sometime because we know we haven't heard all of your stories <laughs> oh i have a lot of them but thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share and have a great weekend Thank you for joining us for another Courageous Conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more.